I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Tori Whitaker is the best-selling author of Millicent Glenn's Last Wish, and a matter of happiness. She belongs to the Bourbon Women Association and the Historical Novel Society. Her work has appeared in the Historical Novels Review and Bookmarks Magazine. Tori graduated from Indiana University, is an alum of the Yale Writers Workshop, and has recently retired from a national law firm where she served as chief marketing officer. She spent a decade in Detroit because of her husband's career in the automobile industry. And the two now reside near their children outside of Atlanta, and have been married for 45 happy years. Welcome, Tori. Hi, thanks for having me. Detroit's been compared to the Silicon Valley of the past. What was your experience in this world? We lived on a lake outside of the city, but worked in the city. And I actually was right downtown, just blocks away from the General Motors headquarters. I still have a spot in my heart for Detroit. We were there almost 10 years. And although we've been outside of Atlanta for over 20 now, but there's the architecture and the iconic places that do appear in my novel. Some that I'm familiar with having been there and others that I could really relate to as I researched, even though it was during COVID when I was (laughs) researching and I could bring these to the setting. Getting to write about that era in particular was special for me, the 1920s, because my husband has long been associated with the automotive industry in one way Mm -hmm. or another. And and most recently in his semi-retirement, he does automotive restorations for antique automobiles that go back mostly to the 1930s, although he's done a couple from the 20s. And so that was really what spurred my initial idea. I had this vision of a car from like a hundred years ago, being stored away somewhere, hiding something that someone would discover later. And, And that was the kernel of the inspiration for a matter of happiness. Cars do something similar to our homes in that they house these memories. Not only do they house memories, but they also kind of give us a glimpse into those time periods where when you see Model T, you could be driving down a busy street in 2022, but you can almost visualize it on a near empty street far back in our past. Your husband now is restoring cars. It's like restoring history. I love what you're saying. In fact, I feel emotional just hearing oh. you state this in such a way. Cars do evoke emotion with us because we'll remember the first car we ever had. And that will evoke our youthful teenage years, let's say. Mm-hmm. And, and our parents will have pictures and, and maybe grandparents will have pictures of various automobiles over time. Like I have a picture of my mother coming home from the hospital. She's carrying me. There's my dad. They're standing outside. They're coming home for the first time. And, and there's their car. And so I do think that cars are highly connected to emotional experiences in our lives. And in this particular case, 
this Jordan MX Playboy from 1923, which is the, the centerpiece of the story. It's the, it's the cherished heirloom that one character will leave for another. It represented freedom. The 1923 Jordan MX Playboy, as it was called, <laughs> represented freedom to the young modern woman of the jazz age. Interesting that a car represents freedom to a woman. Yeah. In an era where until that time, really not that many women were actually driving. My character Violet's father, when she's a teenager, won't let her drive his Ford Model T, even with him in it. I mean, he just doesn't think that's something appropriate to a woman. There were still lots of even other women who frowned upon the flappers who would drive. And it was somewhat scandalous uh, among the other scandalous things that flappers did in the early 1920s prohibition era. My grandfather went to Kalamazoo prison for bootlegging. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He passed away before I was born. So let's get into this. Tell us about a matter of happiness. It's the story that is a dual timeline of Violet in the early prohibition years Violet leaves Kentucky and her home family and everything when she loses her job as a clerical worker for a bourbon distillery when Prohibition hits in 1920. She decides to go off to get a job in the fastest growing city in America, which at the time is Detroit. And Detroit has the motor car boom and the great migration and a huge influx of immigrants and people from all around the country really coming for work in the factories. And she goes up there and gets a job in a spark plug factory. The goal really is to be independent, to be on her own and to be the modern woman. In time, she will become 103 years old, actually. And she bequeaths her beloved car, the Jordan MX I was telling you about, to her great, great, great niece, Melanie, who in the modern day lives in Kentucky, where she's a rising star in a growing distillery. So I've kind of juxtaposed the Prohibition era with the bourbon boom that we see today, because now all 50 states have their own bourbon distilleries, and you can't really go anywhere without seeing bourbon cocktails on a menu and everything these days. That's the the core of the story. Melanie will inherit the car and the secrets it keeps. She will discover that there's a journal hidden in it. And even though when she was a little girl, she and her great aunt Violet, as she called her, were very close. She had no idea of the wild past and secret set Aunt Violet had from the Jazz Age. You bring up bourbon, and I noticed you're a member of the Bourbon Women Association, an organization I hadn't heard of until now. Can you tell us about your fascination with bourbon? Some 10 years ago around there, my husband and I toured the Bourbon Trail, which is sort of like touring Napa Valley, where you go to different wineries and you have little tastings. And in Kentucky, you go to distilleries and you have a sip of bourbon and you do a tour and they've got these visitor centers and we really enjoyed it. My husband has been somewhat of a bourbon drinker for a long time. I used to drink more, let's say, have a Cosmo or maybe a glass of wine. In recent years, I too have become a convert. I love a bourbon cocktail. I just somehow had that vision of combining 
the era when bourbon died in Kentucky in uh, 1920, there were 200 distilleries and only six survived because they gained the license to be able to sell medicinal alcohol. But the rest died and it really depressed the economy in the state. So I was inspired to send my character to the automotive boom. But in the modern day, revisit today's version. And and that's really how it came about. Amy Reichert, I think it was two years ago, maybe, that she, I cannot remember the title of her book. Oh, Amy, I'm so sorry. About food in Wisconsin. She's got several that talk about food, but one of them had the 1950s cocktail with bourbon in it. Like an old fashioned. um, Old fashioned. That's what it was. It was an old fashioned. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. Old fashioned from the 50s. Okay. My mother-in-law, she used to drink bourbon and water. I didn't realize bourbon was in so many mixed drinks, but I'm seeing it now on menus all the time. My husband and I are wine people, and I'm curious how this works when you go on a bourbon tasting, because I know with the wine, you go to two or three wineries. If you enjoy it as much as we did, you really can't go to too many more (laughs) until you go back and take a nap and then go back out. What is the proof on bourbon? Well, it depends on what distillery you go to. It'll range from probably 90 proof, which is 45% alcohol. To maybe you might get one that is 110 proof um, on a tour. There are higher proof bourbons. I don't recall getting too many of those on a tour tasting, but honestly, (laughs) what we generally find is that the sips are pretty small, maybe half an ounce or maybe an ounce. Bourbon is generally known to be a spirit that is sipped slowly. Mm-hmm. It's made slowly because it has to age for so many years and it's sipped over conversation. Like scotch. Scotch is another whiskey. Bourbon can only be made in the United States. Scotch can only be made in Scotland. There are laws that govern that. Like champagne can only come from the champagne region. You're teaching me all kinds of things. So when you go to these bourbon tastings, I grew up Catholic, but non-denominational churches have those little communion cups. That's what I'm picturing. Sometimes they will have what's called a nosing or a tasting glass, which is, I don't know, four inches tall, maybe narrow. And even that will only have a sip at the bottom. Even if you have a tasting of four different expressions of their bourbon over the course of a tour, it's going to be one or two ounces. And typically my husband and I will share, and then you go to the gift shop. And if they have a restaurant, Mm -hmm. you go eat some good old Kentucky food and yeah, fun. it's generally pretty safe. Although there might be people who overindulge. One day, if we're on vacation, we might hit two or three. When did you know you were destined to become a writer? I thought I would write a book one day when I was about 27 years old. That's when the inspiration hit me to write a book. Though I actually came to my love of history before I came to my love of writing. I knew at five years old that I loved history from my grandparents taking me to museums. I did study journalism through high school. I minored in English in college, and I always did like to write after that. I guess I started enjoying writing probably around ninth grade, let's say, but it didn't hit me to write a book until I was 27. Well, then I was in my corporate career and still had kids at home, 
I didn't really get started on it till they left for college. And so I was in my early 40s. And I'll tell you, I did write a couple practice novels before I was able to get one published. It took me a while. I didn't actually get my debut out until I was 61 years old. That was in the height of COVID in the fall of 2020. This is your second novel. What did you learn between book one and book two? Well, one of the things I learned... In book one, I was able to apply more instantly in book two. And that is when you write a dual timeline story, one of the stories that is one of the threads, like say the modern day thread, can't be there just in service to the historical part. You have to have a story arc in the historical timeline and in the modern timeline. And then the book as a whole has to have an arc. And and that was something I really knew going in on the second one. And so I'm a plotter. I do my outlining, although a lot changes as I go Mm -hmm. and a lot changes in subsequent drafts, but I do start with an outline. And so I knew that Melanie in the modern day was going to have to have her own storyline from the start. That's probably the main thing I would take away. That's a really good point. Because of that appreciation, there are writers who tend to put a little dash of history in a story to make it richer, but without it having its own arc, it's there like wallpaper and it really doesn't serve the story. You have to have a gratuitous history in your book, right? (laughs) It's got to tie into the character's point of view and and Mm -hmm. what's relevant to her or him. I've heard people say that with dual POV and also dual timeline, they'll do it in different ways. One chapter, this person, one chapter, this one, or they'll do it like two totally separate books and then merge the two. What did you do? I don't think I could ever do it that last way, but I suppose you never say never. I'm a hybrid. I think I will get in the head of one of the characters in one of the timelines and write for three or four chapters typically. And while I'm in that zone of that era, mm-hmm. and then I'll write maybe three or four chapters in the other era, and then combine them and keep that going as it flows all the way through to the end of the book. I don't go one chapter, one chapter, one chapter, one chapter. Yeah. I, I can't turn it off that sharply. Like if I'm in the 1920s Detroit, I want to be in there for a little while. But what typically happens is I come to a chapter or an action scene or a turning point maybe in the story where it's just a natural time for me to adopt and shift into the other person's story. And that could even be on a different day. Usually that spawns an idea for the other. I can really identify with what you're talking about because in my debut novel, I had the same main character in both timelines. Mm -hmm. Um, She was 91 years old in the modern day setting and she was in the post-World War II, early 1950s era, she was a young woman, but it was her POV through the whole story. Even though I still wrote a few chapters in each timeline, just so I could Mm -hmm. keep in the sense of place. Uh, With this book, I had to learn fresh how to write two actual POVs in addition to the two timelines and two places and eras. It's like double the work. You're writing almost Mm -hmm. two timelines with two point of view characters. It's almost two miniature books in one. It was a challenge. I'll be honest, but I love it. I love to read books like that. And so, and it had to be done that way this time I thought, and I thought I would, I mean, challenge myself to, you know, what does a writing day look like for you? 
Well, just to be seeing what it looks like since I retired from my job this past summer. I have always written up until now in fits and starts and bursts. I've been at the law firm where I was a a C-suite executive. I was there more than 20 years. I had a lot of vacation time. And so I would use my vacation and take off and be prepared. I'd have my outline. I'd have my chapter goals. And I would start writing on a Saturday morning all the way through the next week through Sunday evening going 11 to 14 hours a day. I would get in a zone and I just couldn't stop. And I'd write and write and write. And then the rest of the time I would be writing in evenings or weekends or, or mostly maybe doing revising um, and drafting a chapter here or there. But when I get in a zone, I sit up here in my office with the door shut. I don't listen to music. Not that I don't listen to music when I'm outside, like Mm -hmm. the 1920s music or something in a car, but I just get in a zone. Right now, I am researching for my next novel, and I haven't started writing it yet, although I've started sort of outlining it. I've got a little working synopsis, let's call it, but I don't think I'm going to get in lockdown mode until after New Year's. Where is this next one going to be set? I haven't finalized that yet. I've got a couple cities in mind. I'm not intentionally trying to be cryptic, but I actually have decided where it's going to be. I just know kind of what the plot might be. I kind of like how my first novel was set in Cincinnati and you see Mm -hmm. novels set there, but not a lot. And in Detroit, certainly I'd never read of the Prohibition era novel in Detroit, although I've read some other novels set there, but not in that era, unlike say Chicago or New York City, where you find a lot of prohibition era novels being set. So I think you'll see in my next book, at least one setting that is a little off the beaten track, somewhere new for readers to read about as a historical fiction reader. I love learning new things. And I think they do too. Anything fresh. Mm -hmm. I learn when I'm researching. Fun for us too. Yeah. Fun for us on this end and that end. Good books you've read lately? I just finished The Marriage Portrait by Mm -hmm. Maggie O'Farrell. I heard that was really good. Oh my, Lance, that was good. I listened to it in audio and it was just so beautifully rendered by the narrator. And then I also just finished Horse, which is set in Kentucky, largely in the 1800s. And it's a dual timeline. Actually, I think it's three timelines that goes into modern day. Both of these books are about art at their Mm -hmm. center and along with their amazingly crafted characters. And I love novels about art. In fact, earlier this year, I finished Lisa Barr's Woman on Fire. Yes. I love that. As lovely as her books are, she is just as lovely as a person. She actually came to Atlanta on tour the day after my book launch, and I just couldn't make it happen. It was about an hour away from me, and I had like three podcast interviews that day and stuff, and I just couldn't do it. I would love to have met her. Your paths will cross. During COVID, obviously, we couldn't go to a lot of conferences. And so we all had to kind of pivot a little bit. And so I think a lot of us went to podcasts, craft books, and things like that. What were some of the go-tos that have contributed to your success? The key difference for me between being unpublished to a published author was having gotten into an amazing critique group. I did a 
couple classes with bestselling author Jocelyn Jackson, who lives outside mm-hmm. Atlanta. And while she writes contemporary novels primarily, she's an amazing teacher. I also had the honor a few years ago of going to a 10-day summer workshop as a participant in the Yale Writers mm-hmm. Conference. And what I came away with both those experiences are, I need to be in a critique group. In fact, Jocelyn said, if you learn nothing else from this class, come out of it with a critique group. And there were a couple other historical fiction writers in there. And we have been meeting just on our own every month for almost six years, whether it was in COVID and we were doing it through Zoom or it was before COVID and we would meet once a month and have dinner and critique each other's work and come with our feedback. What I found, Chris, is that I learned as much, I continue to learn as much from reading other people's early drafts Mm -hmm. as I do from their reading mine. That was a piece I just didn't do in my early novel writing, even though I went to conferences and read craft books and stuff, and I still do. It was this process of the workshop experience and critiquing and getting critiqued that made a huge difference for me. What is your advice for new writers? With the dual timeline structure in particular, I like to read each timeline alone And that kind of goes back to that need of seeing an arc. I read them each alone to see if they make sense and they have a story separately as well as together. Mm -hmm. And a second part of this tip is I also like to read my whole novel with the chapters mixed up. If I have 48 chapters, I'll write a page down one through 48 and I'll just go in and to my Word document. And I might start with chapter 26 or I might start with chapter 14 and then I'll hit chapter 38. And I'll just kind of go randomly through. And what that allows me to do is to see the chapter isolated for what it is. Maybe you experience this. When you've read your novel start to finish a hundred times, you know what's going to happen next and you kind of see it coming. And, And what I find when I read a chapter in isolation out of order, it gives me an eye to how I might restructure some sentences or shorten some paragraphs or something like that and tighten it up and maybe work on word count and things like that. It's just something that has worked for me in both of my novels. I have not had anyone recommend that yet where that can really help. We focus on how the book starts, first page. How many times do we revise that first page? That first chapter. Oh, yeah. Look at the transitions. That is such a great idea for seeing how it stands alone. Does it really serve or does it feel like fluff? Sometimes you cut the fluff that way because your mind isn't just already programmed to like blend right into the next scene. Yeah. That's super helpful. Thank you, Tori. Well, thank you. I've so enjoyed. To learn more, visit ToriWhitaker.com. If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.